Um, Anti-Semitism is not something we're new to us. It's actually it's on the increase, and it's a it's a something which is studied across the world. What is the cause of anti-Semitism? And the truth is, if we look at this week's Sedra coming up, as Imparsha's told us, that's where you find the first, the first, uh, the roots of anti-Semitism are Yisrael Esavet Yaakov, the Esav hated Yaakov. And Bezat Hashem, what I, want to, what I want to do this evening is to take a look at the story as it unfolds from the beginning of Parashat Soldis as we proceed through the Sedra. And we'll see that actually anti-Semitism, it goes far deeper than perhaps one would assume it's just jealousy, Esau being jealous of Yaakov. It seems to be something a little bit more, um, a little bit more deep, uh, a little deeper than that as to what exactly um, Esau hopes to achieve with his, his attitude towards Yaakov. There's a statement of the Vilna Gaon, the Vilna Gaon in his Pirish on Chad Gadio, and he writes, Klal Godaretzleinu. This is a well-known rule that we have, Shekol HaTovis, Shehoyu V'Sheyihyu Oit. That all goodness that we have had and that we will have, Bein Ba'ilam Azeh, Uvein Ba'ilam Abol, both in this world and the next, Es Kulam Yorashnu Mi'Abuseinu. All of them we inherited from our forefathers, Be'ish Shepirech Yitzchak Es Yaakov. When Yitzchak gave those infamous brachas to Yaakov. Then he finishes off with an absolutely startling statement. He says, You should know that if not for those brachas, we would have missed out on all goodness and everything would have gone over to Esau. That means to say both in this world, both in Odom and Odom Everything would have gone to Esau. That's quite a Quite a startling statement, as we said, because, okay, we wouldn't have got the brachas. But still, to say that we would have got absolutely nothing, no goodness whatsoever, both in this world and the next, and it would have gone to Esau, Esau Barasha, how are we supposed to understand this statement of the Vilna God? So, in fact, before I go any further, it's just one point along the way, just something to consider. If that's the case, Bear in mind that when Rivka Imenu, she said to Yaakov, I'm telling you, you have to go and get the brothers, we all know that Yaakov didn't want to do it. Because he said that it's going to take, it's going to, I'm going to have to lie. I'm going to have to tell things which are not absolutely true, not, not absolutely honest. I can't do that. He was prepared to forego all the toilets of this world and the next. Why? So as not to have to lie. If that doesn't raise our appreciation of, of MS, of truth, well then what will? This was he was prepared to forgo everything, so as not to lie. In the end, Rivka persevered, she told him, you've got to go. But we'll come back, Brother Sashem, later on in the share to explain what exactly does the Vilna Gaon mean by that? Why would we have lost everything, both in this world and the next? But as I said, let's start from the very, very beginning. And I'll share with you first a, something which many people have probably heard before, a vote from Rav Shonen Shvadron. And in fact, Rav Shonen Shvadron, he, when he said this over, I'm not going to say it exactly as he said it, because he was thrown out of where he was speaking and never asked to come back. Um, so I will change the, the actual moshot he used, um, but the Epsom idea is his. We know that Rivka, she had been doubling for children, Yitzchak and Rivka, for 20 years. Finally, that spillers were answered, and she felt inside her this sense of running. So Rashi tells us that every time she passed a shul, she'd pass a Beis HaMedrash, she felt as if somebody was trying to get out. And then, I mean, obviously she was quite excited at that, but then when she'd pass a mosque, a church, something like that, then again she felt the same urge, somebody trying to come out. So she said in Cain, if that's the case, Lomo Well, I've been doubling 20 years for this. What's the point? So she went to ask of Yeshua what's going on. So in other words, she understood she had inside her just one child. And this child was very mixed up. He wanted to go to shul. He'd want to learn. But he also had other interests. She said, if that's the case, Lomo Just one point. What does it mean, Lomo Why this I am? What does that mean? But we get the gist of it. She said, I'm not interested in such a child. So off she goes. 
She's very concerned. She can't sleep at night. She goes off to Yeshiva Hashem Ve'eva. And she's told, don't worry. Nothing to worry about. Shnei Goyim Bebitnei. Actually, it's two distinct, two different children. And one of them is going to be a great tzaddik, Yaakov. And the other one, he's going to be really the biggest menace, the biggest Russia you can possibly imagine. Nothing to worry about. Sure. So with that, she went home. Now she can sleep at night. So Rishon Shvadron says, what's going on in there? I know you've got the good news of Yaakov, but you're not concerned about Esau. This is the worst thing possible. He's not just a mixed up child. He's a child who's not interested at all. So what's going on over here? So before I tell you what Rishon Shvadron answered, let me just take you back to, when I say last week, Sajra, to what we just laid today. We have in Parashat Chayisara, Eliezer Ebed Avram, he goes along and he's looking for a wife for Yitzchak. And he finds Rivka, and when he realizes she's the right one, so he gives her Shanit Tzimidim Al two bracelets on her arms. Their weight is ten golden pieces. So Rashi says, why did he give her Shanit Tzimidim Asarozah Mishkolom? What was the intent in this? So Rashi says he was being Maramis. He was alluding to her, you should know, in the future, some, many years down the line, Kalani Sorad are going to receive at Matan Torah the two Lokas. That's the Shnei Tzimidim, the two Lokas. And the Asaraza of Mishkalom, you guessed it, yeah, that's the Aseres Adibris. So I once heard from a, a tzaddik in, in Eretz Yisrael, somebody called, I believe his name was Rab Aaron Golavanzit, uh, he said, Pshat is like this. The word Tzimidim comes from the word Samud. When something is Samud, it means that it's, it's, it's a tight fitting. They go, they fit one on top of the other. That's why Tzimidim, apparently a bracelet is called a Tzamid, is because it supposedly fits tightly around the arm. Maybe not the way women wear it today, I don't know, but that's why it's called Tzimidim. So, so he says that we know the two Luchos, they have two we have one, the first set is Ben Adam Lamokot, the mitzvahs which pertain to our relationship with Hashem, believing in Hashem, not serving idols, keeping Shabbos, even Kibbutz Aim is discussed why that's there. And then you've got the second, the second um, Luach, on which you have the other five mitzvahs, which are Ben Adam Lachaveir, between man and his friend. Not to, not to murder, not to steal, etc., etc. They were shenayt to me then, because as we know, if you've only got one luach, if you've only got one of these two tablets, it's nothing. They always like to say, the Gemara says that if you've got, somebody who's got Torah below Martin Tobin, somebody who's got Torah without good deeds, the Gemara says he's kimisha ein loya he's like somebody without a god. I always like to say that, depending on how you understand Martin Tobin, the gematria of the word Torah is 611, and the gematria of the word Gemilas Chasodim is also 611. So you've got somebody who, Torah, he sits on that 18 hours a day. But as the Stadler put it, he knows how to interact with his shtender. When it comes to interacting with other people, he doesn't have a clue. There's no sense of Gemilas Chasodim. His middos are completely, completely off. Such a person, he thinks, yeah, look at me, I'm building a relationship with Hashem, you should know, he's Kemisha in Dayadoika. Torah without Gemilas Chasodim is zero, is nothing. This was the message he was giving over to Rivka. Shanae Tzimidim, the two Luchos, they have to be Tzamud. They have to be fit one next to each other. And in fact, the Vilna Gaon takes it further, that Onoichi Hashem Elekecha, that corresponds to the first one on the second one, on the second of the Luchos. And you can go all the way down like that. The question is obviously, but why was he telling Rivka this at this, at this point, this juncture? What's it got to do with Rivka? So perhaps we could, we could I'm just going to add to what he said, and that's like this. That we know, if I was to ask you, Avraham Avinu, what middah stands out in terms of, of Avraham Avinu? Is it Bein Odom Lachaveru or Bein Odom Lamokin? Now, there's no doubt about it, he was exemplary in both. But if I, we had to pick out one, we'd say, he's known for his being the pillar of Chesed. His Gemilas Chasodim is, was absolutely unbelievable. So he was Chesed. Yitzchok, on the other hand, he's associated with Bein Odom Lamokin, the Akedah. He's Avodah. So now, Eliezer has been sent on a mission to find a suitable wife for, y- for Yitzchok. And who does he find? He finds Rivka. Rivka, she excelled in, not Avodah, 
But in Chesed, according to the Medrash, a three-year-old young girl going back and forth, schlepping all these truffles of water, her Chesed was absolutely incredible. When he gave over the Shnei Tzimidim to her, he was telling her, you have to realize, you are going to be the second of the Imamis. Yitzchak is going to be the second of the Ovis. Together you're going to be setting the foundations for Kral Yisrael. The reason why you are the suitable wife for, it, for, for Yitzchak is because he needs a counterbalance. If you've only got Aboida, if you've only got the Akedah, if you've only got Benodam Lamokon, he's not going to get anywhere in life. That won't build a nation such as Kral Yisrael. For that we need Shanaid Tzimidim. He needs a wife who will be absolutely, will match his, his level of Avodah, of Bein Odom Lamokin, he needs somebody who will match that in terms of Bein Odom Lachaveru. And that's exactly what she was. That's why he gave her Shanei Tzimidim. So, coming back to, now to Rav Shalom Shaladron's question. So what was this all about? By Yisraeli to Avon in Bekirba, so she said, I've got this mixed up child, Fatayme in Cain, Lomoze Onechi, so she goes off to Yeshiva Hashem Be'ev and she's told, don't worry, you've got a Tzadik and you've got a Rosha. So it's a Rosh Hashanah and I said, I'm going to change the Moshul slightly. But he said like this, if I was to ask you, how many Bali Teshuvah do you know who come from, let's say, a reform, a conservative, a liberal background, I'm not saying they don't exist, but it's far, far harder to change somebody who believes they've got the genuine, the real McCoy, the genuine Yiddishkeit, because they say to you, what do you want of me? You're trying to be Makari of me? I'll be Makari of you. You go to a Masorti Jew. They say to you, we're from it than you. We don't have any lights on Shabbos. You do. I'll be Makari of you. You go to the, the Reform. They say you're living in, in our sort of a archaic back then, archaic Judaism. We don't need this. They want to change us. You will have a very, very hard time because they think they've got the real thing. But if you go to somebody who simply just never, was never privy to the beauty in Yiddish guys, they've got nothing. You show them the beauty in, in Yiddishkeit, and they're just taken by it. Why? Because they've got, they don't have that, that uh, antagonism, that will to reject what you've got to say. They know they don't have it. So now you show them, they've never been shown it before, and they'll be drawn like a magnet. Rivka said, when she thought she had one child inside her, she said, beautiful, he'll go to Shul in the morning, he'll go learn every day. But he'll, say to, he'll think, that's fine. So, so what if I'm out... In the fields and doing things which one patch, well, you're telling me I shouldn't be doing? You're going to have a far harder time being Makari of such a person. She said, What's that expression, Onechi? So perhaps we could say, as I said, this is not Rishon Shadron on this point, but like this. We'll come back to this later. What is the difference between Onechi and Ani? Both in English we translate as I. So the Nesivas. Rabbi Yaakov Meniza, he says, the difference is like this. The word Ani is who I am. That's my identity. It's both, within the word Ani, for those who are into, into Hebrew grammar, you've got both the subject and you've got the object. Ani, the Aleph is like the word Eshmer, I will God. That's the Aleph, it's the prefix I will. Ani is the object, like in the possible, Shmorani, and he will guard me. So he says, Ani is who I am. If you ask me who I am, I'll tell you my name, Ani but Anochi means something else entirely. Anochi comes from the word, says Benesivus, it comes from the word Anoch. Anoch is like a plumb line. If you want to make sure your wall is absolutely straight, to use a plumb line to make sure the wall is 100% straight. Because then, if it's absolutely 110% straight, you can then put something right up against it. Samut again. It could be right up against it. But if the wall is a little bit off course, you won't be able to get something else up right up against it because it's not quite straight. Onochi, therefore, says Benesivus, means not just who I am. This is what is matim to me. This is what belongs to me, fits very well with me. It's a perfect fit. The, per- the, the classic example he gives is when Boaz asked Rus. He asked her on that night when Rus went to, to sleep at his feet. He asked her, who are you? Now, he wasn't asking her name. He was asking her, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? Lying in my fetus. Middle of the night, what's going on? So what did she answer? She didn't answer, Ani Rus, Amosecha. I am Rus, your maidservant. Because he didn't ask her, what's your name? For the identity. He was asking her, what are you doing here? So she answered, Onechi Rus, Amosecha. Onechi means to say that I am going to be your wife one day. In the very, very near future. 
That's onoichi. We are meant for one another. We're a perfect fit. This is what Rivka was saying over here. She said, in Cain, if I've got a child who's so mixed up, he thinks he's got the real thing. This child, I will never be able to bring him around to my way of thinking. My way in Yiddishkeit, my way in life, I'll never be able to bring him around. We will never be a perfect fit. She said, if that's the case, this is not what I've done for. So off she went to Yeshiva Hashem and she's told, don't worry. You've got here, on the one hand, you've got Yaakov, and the other one is Esau. But since, at least as she saw it, Esau would be completely, completely not interested, she said, well then, if that's the case, there is hope. After all, who was her father-in-law? Her father-in-law was the, the, uh, the propagator of what we know now as the Kirov movement, Abraham Avinu. He was the most successful Makarev ever in the history of Klad Yisrael. See, she said, if that's the case for his own grandchild, Esau, there is hope. And therefore, she said, if that's the case, I can now sleep at night. That was what she was hoping. Let's move from there into stage number two. That's stage number one. So now, she goes through from pregnancy to birth. And she gives birth to these two children. And as they grow up, the Bosik says, Yitzchak es Esau. So Yitzchak, he's got a special affection for Esau. Kitzayid befit. Whatever that means. So most people will tell you, this was a case that Rivka, or Rivka knew the truth. She knew what exactly, exactly what Esau was up to. And Yitzchak, he was blind, he was slightly, I mean, it, it makes it sound like he was rather naive. It's obviously, it's very simplistic. So, Rav Gedalia Shur, he says that's not what it means. He says we have to go back to what we introduced earlier. Again, Avraham Avinu, he was the paradigm of Chesed. Yitzchak, he was the paradigm of of Ben Adam of Avayda. Just to understand this properly, we just have to introduce one one other idea, and that is that if we go back to the beginning of time, we know that Adam Arishan was placed in Gan Eden. And he was told there are two trees here. One is Eitadas Tovvorah, and the other one is the Eitachayim. One is the tree of, of knowledge, and the other one is the tree of life. And as long as you toe the line, Gesundheit, take from the Eitachayim, take from the tree of life, and everything will be fine. But once Chavah gave him to eat from the Eitadas, so then Hashem said, we can't have him eating from the Eitachayim anymore. In other words, in this Avera, not only had there been had something gone wrong with Eitz Hadas, but also something had gone wrong, gone wrong with Eitz Hachayim. So the Urgadalia, that's from Gedalia Shari, says that the Eitz Hachayim, the tree of life, is just life. Life means it's all good. That means somebody who just sits and learns all day. The Eitz Hadas Tov Varah means the battle between good and evil. That refers to somebody who takes on the, goes to the battlefront and he fights to fend off the powers of evil. Abraham Ovinu, as we said, he was just a man who just did good. He was kind to everyone. He wasn't actually fighting on that battlefield. The man who would fight evil, that was Yitzchak. Yitzchak was Avodah. We, we call it Gevuras Yitzchak. He was the giver. He was the mighty man of valor. He went out to fight of, of evil. He then has two sons. One is Yaakov and one is Esau. Yaakov is the Ishtom Yeshev Ohalim. He just sits and learns. That's what he does. Not out there, he doesn't, doesn't uh, get, get involved in the outside world. He just sits and learns. Whereas Esau, he's a giver. He gets, he gets involved in the outside world. So Yitzchak believed that, it's not Pshat, he was naive. He knew what, what Esau was all about. He had a side to him of evil. But he was hoping he also had a side of good. And hopefully if he trains Esau properly, if he gives over his, his legacy to Esau, then Esau will be able to use his side, his attraction towards good, to quash the side of evil. And with that, he will be able to be Masakein to, to fix up what went wrong in the Eitadas Tevvoro. In simple terms, that means to say that Esau, at least as, ya- as Yitzchak saw it, he was his continuation. Esau was the man who would be the giver. He would go out and fight the forces of evil and hopefully quash them. Yaakov, on the other hand, he was just a person who sat and did, just sat and learnt all day. So now we understand why Rivka, a Heves, says Yaakov. Rivka, she was the symbol of Chesed, a woman who just 
simply just did good. She was, she had an affection, an affinity for Yaakov. But, but uh, Yitzchok, who was the man, he was the giver, he thought, you know what, his continuation would be Esau. So he was out there to try and train Esau to try and get him onto the right path. That's what, that's what we have over here. But perhaps better, better known is what Rashi tells us, Kitzayid Bethiv. What does that mean, Tzayid Bethiv? Why did Yitzchak love Esau? Kitzayid Bethiv. So Rashi tells us because Esau was more than two-faced. He would come into his father and he would say to his father, he'd say, Daddy, you know, does this, do I need to take Misa from this? Do I have to take Truma from this? He would fool his father, give his father the impression he was really Azar Truma. He was already from Orthodox man. And, well, his father was blind. He didn't really know what he was getting up to. So, Rav Shalom says over here, in a separate idea, he says, you should know, Esau is not, as we're all taught, back in kindergarten, he was a man with, with nose rings, earrings, and ring, rings all over his body, tattoos, long hair, wild, a wild man. He wasn't that. Says Rav Shalom he had a strimal. Oh yes, he had a strimal. He also had his langarekel. Maybe even he had a tish on Friday night. Maybe he even had chassidim. He was a from Jew. He says, but what went wrong was, I'm going to use my own words, but this is, is what we said before. There was a sense of contradiction. Of course he went and davened in the morning. Of course he went to the Beis HaMedrash and had his careers to learn. But there was a contradiction. And I'll prove it to you. If I was to ask you, tell me, which mitzvah was Esau stands out in your mind? I know everyone's going to say, Kibbutz aim, right? As somebody points out earlier, actually Kibbutz Ov, because he had that attraction to his father. Okay, but it was Kibbutz Ov Aim. That was his mitzvah. Which mitzvah? That's on the Bein Odom Ramokim, right? That's on the, that's the fifth of the Aseret HaDibros. That's the last one on the first of the two Luchas. Which one corresponds, which one on the second Luchas parallels that? The last one of the Aseret HaDibros is Leisachmet. How was Aesop in terms of jealousy? Did he manage on that one? He was about the biggest failure when it came to jealousy. I mean, look what he did to Yaakov. He was out to kill Yaakov, essentially, because he was jealous. So there was this sense of inconsistency, exactly what Rivka, she feared earlier. She was worried that if this child, she thought it was one child, if he's got this sense of inconsistency, okay, there was a case of going to shul and then going off to places which she'd rather he didn't go to, but if there's that sense of inconsistency, you're never going to be able to change it. And her worst fears were realized now, in a slightly different sense. But that is, yes, Kibbutz aim he excelled in. And when it came to its flip side, when it came to the, the other side, Loisachmod, he was an absolute failure. Roshana Shradrani says, if you want to know what a modern day Esau looks like, he says he was once, many years ago, it was late at night, Kimata is, is, is getting on for, for, for midnight, and he was down in, in Meir Shorim. He says, this is back in the day when you didn't get a minion at any time of the night. And he went there to Dalton Marev at the Shtibel. And there was a, what he calls our little tzaddik, well, our big tzaddik, who was running around trying to get a minion together. And he called out, Rabiud, Rabiud, do you want to come and help it? He says, yeah, yeah. He says, come and come in, just stay there. You're number six. We're working on it. And every five, five, ten minutes, another person wanders in. Finally, after half an hour, it's already gone on They've got their minion. He says, as he says, Al Tzaddik now goes up to the Omud and he opens the Siddha, straightens up his jacket, his hat, and he's just about to start. And as he's about to start with Hurachum, another Yid runs in, out of breath, sweating profusely, and he says, I beg of you, I've got your sight from my father today, I've come a long, long way. Please, I'm not going to get a minion, please let me take the Omud. There was absolute silence in the room, what was going to happen now? So Al Tzaddik looks around with a face of absolute derision, he says, You come now? Now? Where have you been for the last half hour? Do you want to come quarter of an hour? We want to be sitting around waiting for a minion. No way, go get your own minion. He says, I beg of you. If I don't get, the, if I don't get it now, I've come all the way. I'm not going to get a minion. So what does the Sadiq say at this point? Oh no, he's got a justification up his sleeve. He says, that's exactly the point. He says, if the yacht site really meant that much, you leave it to, to now to come, turn up at the last minute, no way. He pushes them away and he starts off with Hurachum. So at that point, Rosh Hashanah he stands up. Just as he's starting with Hurachum and he says, Aha! You see? Esau is about to dump Marif. And with that, he walked out. No more minion. 
He says, that's a modern day Aesop. Some yes, he'll govern. He'll learn. But his middos, his sense of interaction with others, he couldn't care less. That's Aesop, these. So here we have Aesop. He comes in now. He's growing up. He comes in from the field one day. And he's tired. Aesop says to Yaakov, He looks over, what's Yaakov? Yaakov's cooking a pot there. He sees some, some red concoction there. So Ramban says he didn't even know what it was. It looked, looked quite good. He says, I need this, please give it to me. But he didn't just say, give it to me. What did he say? Haditeni means, I'll open my mouth and just pour it in, like you feed the camel. That word haditeni means like, like a camel. So, Yaakov says to himself like this, he says, this person, he's got the Bukhira, this person who behaved like an animal, I'm going to let him serve in the base Hamikdash one day, can't have this. In other words, if you look carefully at what actually unfolds, it's not Yaakov saying, I need the COVID, I need this big position. We know that's what Kairach did. And look what happened to Kairach. If you look at Rashi, Rashi says, the Yaakov looked at Esau and he said, this Rasha is not Kedai, this Rasha is not deserving to do the Avedah for Hashem. What a bizarre! No way. See, he sees this as his opportunity. He's got Esau in some sort of corner. And he says to Esau, you want this red concoction? It'll come at a price. I want the Bechairah. Sell me the Bechairah. So Esau says to him, he says, well, well, what's in it? So he tells him a little bit about it. And Esau says, fine. I'm going to die anyway. And he sells it to him. Next thing we know is it says, gets up. And Esau now, he despises the Bechairah. Now why does he despise? Why does he ridicule the Bechairah? And this is where we see the roots of everything we've been building up to. This is where we see it taking, taking effect. Because Esau realized he'd made quite a big mistake here. Taka, he didn't really value the Bechairah. But as the Ramban said, people were laughing at Esau. They were, they were laughing at him. You didn't even know what this red concoction contained. So even if you don't value the Bechairah, at least you probably could have got a better deal out of it. At least got a coffee at the end of it. Right? You sell it for some concoction, you don't even know what it is. So Esau feels a fool. Now he has a choice now. He can either admit he's wrong and try and make sure he doesn't make the same mistake in the future. Or, or maybe even ask Yaakov, maybe we could go back on this because sort something out here. No, he didn't. He decided, you know what? I'm, gonna, I'm right. I believe this Bechira was not even worth that red concoction. He says the Bechira was more of a nuisance. Good, now Yaakov's got it. I don't need it. I got the better end of the deal. And he continued on like this till he actually convinced himself and was hoping to convince others that actually he got the better end of the deal. But here what's important for us is we see just the roots of this bad middle on Esau's part. Exactly what Rivka was afraid of. If you've got a child, if you've got a person who's convinced of his path and will, not, will never change, there's no point. There's no point even trying. Because what happened on that day, who died on that day, was Avraham Avinu. What happened? But Avraham Avinu, he died five years early, in fact, we're told. He died at 175. Why? But Avraham Avinu, we need you. Maybe you'll be able to convince Esau to change his ways. The answer is when you've got a child like that, who's already set in his path, but he's not just set on a path. He's got the two sides. He's got this sense of imbalance. He's oscillating this way, that way. Such a child, Avraham Avinu will raise his hands and say, you know what, I'd rather die than see where this is going to end up. There's no way I'm going to be able to change this child. This is what he was, this is what Rifkov did. And as we'll see, let's continue on now. And it gets worse. We go from there. And in fact, just before we go on, I'll give you another example of where we see this. This is quite an extreme example, but it just gives you an idea how bad if a person is, refuses to admit they're wrong, look what happens. There was a false novi in Nach called Hananya ben Azar. He was a false novi. And one day, Yirmiyahu Anovi comes along to him and says, you don't change your ways, I'm telling you now, you're going to die this year. So, true to his word, he's getting ill as the year comes to its end, it's coming around to Rosh Hashanah, and he's on his deathbed. 
So the Pesach says that he died by Yonas Hananya Hanovi, Bashona Ahi Bachedesh Hashvi. So Rashi tells us, you know what happened? He actually died at Ebrosh Hashanah. But you know what he did? He told his children, I don't want anyone, everyone to know that Yirmiyah was right. So what I want you to do is, I want you to open the windows, put inside the room something which smells, you know, so they shouldn't smell a dead body, cover me up, make sure no one can come in to visit me, basically give the impression that I'm still alive. And then, one day later, on the first of Tishri, when we're ready into the next year, then announce Boruch Dainemes, the great, well, false prophet, but the great prophet, Hananiah, has just been nifter. Just to prove that Yirmiyah got it wrong. He said, I would die this year, and I didn't, I died the next year. So if Chaim Shmudevit says, you see, he's not even going to be around. He's so out there to prove that he's right. He's so unwilling to admit that he's wrong, that it will take it to the extent that even beyond the point of death, I'm not going to be around anymore. But I don't want people to know that I was wrong and that Yirmiyah was right. That's the extent. When a person is stubborn and a person is convinced of his maharich in life, he thinks he's got the real thing, there's no changing such a person even beyond the brink of death, says Reb Chaim Shemuel As I said, it goes worse. Coming back to our story now. So now, moving on some, well, 63 years from when they're born. So Yitzchak is now, he's 123 years old. And Yitzchak says, look, my mother, sorry, maybe she died at 127. Chazal say once a person gets within five years of their parents' lifespan, they should already be, be doing teshuvah and they never know what could happen. So he says to Esau, he says, look, you're my continuation. I don't know what's going to be. Now has come the time. I don't know how much longer I'll have. So I want to hand on the baton to you. I'm going to give you these brachas. And he says, please go out, get two seirim. Note, two seirim, two goats, which correspond, Chazal say, to the two goats of Yom Kippur. That's Avodah for you. That's Avodah. Ah, this is Yitzchak, Avodah. So he says to Esau, you're my continuation. I'm going to hand on the keys to you now. Please go get these two goats. Rivka realizes, this is the point. If the brachas go to Esau, you have to realize, and this is Peshat in the Milmadon, I think. You have to realize, this is the point of truth. This is the moment of truth. If the brachas go to Esau now, Esau will be, shocking as it may sound, he will be the Bechir Sheba Obis. He will be the, I don't know about the choices, but he will be the third and the final of the three Obis. What about Yaakov? Yaakov will be the dear brother. But in other words, if the brachos go over to... It's not just, we're not just talking about brachos here. These are the keys to Yitzchak's continuation. When Yitzchak leaves the world, who's going to continue his, his avodah, his, his path? If the brachos go over to Esau, it means effectively Esau will be the continuation. And that's what the Vilna Gaon means. If the brachos go to Esau, it's not just some blessings. Of course, it doesn't mean we won't be entitled to have a good meal in this world. That's not what it means. The tovis of this world and the next world means... The Avodah of this world and the next, it will go to Esau. And Esau will be it, and Yaakov will be nothing. It will be out of the picture. And she realizes, it's now or never. So she says to, to Yaakov, come on, we need to act now. Yaakov's not so sure about it. As we know, in the end she prevails, and Yaakov goes in. So Yitzchak, he realizes something's a little amiss. And he says, who, who are you? What's going on? So the first time, now, now notice this. What does he say the first time? He says, Anochi Esau Becherecha. Okay, he says, Anochi Esau Becherecha. I am Esau Yebuchar, and we all know the Rashi. Anochi, I am who I am. I'm bringing you the, the, uh, the goat, and Esau is Yebuchar. But note, Anochi Esau Becherecha. The second time he says to him, Ha'atoh zebini Esau imloi. So Yitzchak, one final question. He says, I'm not quite sure what's going on. Are you really Esau? Vayemer, not Anochi, Vayemer, Oni, I am. This is where one of the examples the Nesivas brings. He says, why did he change? He says, because the first time, Yitzchak hadn't asked him, what are you doing? Uh, who are you? For his identity. He was effectively asking, what, what are you doing here? So he said, I'm the one who's Matim. I'm the one who's got this perfect shaykhus to the brachis. That's why I'm here. Esau is your but I'm the one who deserves these brachis. 
The second time, he said to him, but who are you? I'm not asking why you're here. Who are you? Who are you? Are you Esau? What's your name? He can't say Anoichi, because I'm not, I'm not asking what you're doing here. I'm not, I'm not asking why you're here for the brachas. I'm asking who are you? So this time he can't say Ani Esau, because that would be a lie. He's not Esau. So therefore he just says Ani. I am who I am. In other words, I'm Yaakov. He changes. But again, this is Yaakov. He says, I'm the one who's matim to these brachas. Rivka's told me to come in. So now we come to it. Yaakov takes the brachas. And as you know, the Medrash tells us, out Yaakov walks through the, sibyl, through the swivel doors, and as he goes out, Esau comes in. And Esau comes and he says, Daddy, sit up, I've got your meal. So Yitzchak says, what do you mean? What's going on over here? And Chazal tells us, he sees Gehenna opening up. He may have been blind, but he senses Gehenna is there together with Esau. And he says, what's going on over here? Yitzchok is seized by a, by a trembling. And he says, what, what is this? Who, who is the child who just came in before? He begins to chat what's going on. And he says, Two things happen here. He sees Gehenna opening up. And then he says, you know what? Rashi says he was masking to the brothers. He says, you may have thought that Yaakov got them just by trickery. I want you to know I'm now giving over the brothers to Yaakov of my own volition. Willingly. Next possible, we'll come back to that in a second. It says, by When Esau hears, when he, when he hears, he heard the words of his father. What's the words of his father? I believe that's the word as we'll see, if you want to know what really bothered Esau, was not the fact that he lost the brothers. Do you know what bothered Esau? It's Gamboruch Yeyeh. That Yaakov should get the brothers, that's what really shared him. That's what really upset him. Do you know why? Because he realizes, now I'm a real fool. Until now, I knew I was stomach muscle. I sold you know, something I didn't know for some red concoction. But now all of a sudden, I've lost these brothers as well. I don't need the brothers. But people are, I'm going to be the ridicule for... For the rest of time. People are going to say, you sold that, you sold that on the brachas? I may not care about the brachas. But people are going to say, what a fool you are. Uh-uh. Kishmaya Esau, es dibre oviv, vayitzak tzot, gazoda umoros, he cries out a loud and bitter cry. Again, the next words, admoed. Now, as far as I'm aware, and Barilan, the Barilan CD did, con- did confirm this, there's somebody standing at the back there, an expert, Baal Korea, who may be able to confirm this again. Should I say Baal Korea? But as far as I'm aware, Azma'od only comes up in the Torah twice. And that's in these two Pesukim, one following the other. This trembling wasn't stung, just a, a great trembling. It was Azma'od. And then you've got, Vayitzak, Esau cries out, you will not find that, those words, Azma'od, as far as I'm aware, in the rest of the Torah. In Nach you will, but in the Torah, those are the only two times. What does this mean? What is Azma'od? So we have to first understand, what does it mean, the words Ma'od? So this idea, you'll find it, Rav Desla says it, Rabbi Yitzchak Hutna says it, Ramesha Shapiro, all of them, they all say the same idea. The word Ma'od, not on this, they say, wherever you see the word Ma'od, Ma'od signifies going, I mean it's not rocket scientist, but it means, very much means going beyond the limit. For example, we say, HaKadosh Baruch said, Sechorecha harbei ma'od. He said to Avraham Avinu, Anechi mo'ginoch, Sechorecha harbei ma'od. Not just it'll be harbei very much, it'll be ma'od, beyond any limits. Another example, we say, we say in the Zemiris, Kol Shemesh Shabbos, Kados Mechalaloi, anyone who keeps Shabbos, Sechorei harbei ma'od. The Gemara says that a person who keeps Shabbos, his reward is without any, without any limit. Let me give you one final example. This Ramesh Shapiro takes it a little bit further. He says, also. And Vashem saw, finally he's completed creation, he sees everything he's made, and it was not just good, it was very good. Next word, Yem Hashishi. Which Rashi says, Yerim Hashishi is Matan Torah. 
So the Moshe Spirit says, you have to understand that because we have a body, our guf limits what we're able to achieve. But if you take the Torah, then you can go ma'od. You can go beyond any limits. He says, that's why the Medrash says, there's a Medrash which says, Toib ma'od, Toib hamoves, that death is good. What do you mean, death is good? It means life is Toib. But when a person passes on from this world and the body lets the neshama go, that's Toib ma'od, because now it can get to much greater heights. So now coming back, and you'll see this is absolutely shocking what happens now. The B'chaim Shmulevitz, with this, with this Hakdama, you'll appreciate better what he says. Yitzchak realizes this is the moment of truth, as we said. For 63 years, he's had it all wrong. For 63 years, he'd invested all his energy to bring up Aesop to be his continuation. And now, at this moment, at this juncture in his life, he didn't know how much more time he had in this world. He suddenly realizes, I've got it all wrong. As I once heard from some of you Avram Fortune, I'm sure you, many of you know, he's a close Talmud of Subhan Shmulevitz. I heard this idea from him on this Vayekharad many years ago. He said, he gave a moshe like this. He said, imagine you've got, you've got an 80-year-old. And you've got this little bar mitzvah boy who's just putting on spinning for the first time. As you can well imagine, this little bar mitzvah boy, he's very, very excited. He's learned all the halachas, exactly how to have the spin. He's got his mirror, he stands there for a minute, makes sure it's absolutely center. And he looks up and he sees this 80-year-old putting on tefillin, and his tefillin are slightly off, slightly off to the side. So he goes over to the 80-year-old, and he's very, very polite, and he says, I hope you don't mind saying, Mr. Cohen, but, you know, your tefillin are slightly off. So Mr. Cohen blows up. He says, what do you think? Who do you think you are? You suddenly put on tefillin today, and you think suddenly you know that? Why? He said, because he's been doing this for 67 years. Mr. Cohen's been doing this for 67 years, and if he's got it wrong today... He senses that he's had it wrong for 67 years. So he's got a choice now. Either he can put it right, but putting it right means admitting that I've had it wrong for 67 years. Or you can continue on, just pretending that Bar Mitzvah boy never said anything, and then hopefully you can just put it out of your mind and convince yourself you've been doing it right all these years. In other words, to change at this point is so difficult because changing means admitting that I've had it wrong all these years. Means that Yitzchak, he sensed, you know what, if I change now, if I give over the brachas to Yaakov, if I do a complete about turn now, it means 63 years of my life I feel are wasted. An absolute waste of energy. See, he's fighting with himself. He's trembling. But we know there's a simple law in physics. If you've got something in motion going in one direction and you want to change it in the opposite direction, the first thing you have to do is, you have to stop it. Stop it, and then you can start, start it in the opposite direction. So Yitzchak's trembling. He's trying to stop. He's careering towards the edge of this cliff. He knows if he doesn't change now, it's all over, as we said. All the Torahs of this world will go to Esau. Esau will be his continuation, and it doesn't bear thinking about what would, have, what would happen if Esau continues his legacy. And he's trying so hard to stop himself. To fight with this Yitzhahorah, which is telling him, just ignore it, ignore it. You're just, it's just a mirage, it's just, you're, you're hallucinating. But he sees Gehenna there, and he's fighting, he's fighting. Finally, he comes by Yecharad Yitzchak, he says, Me, me, what's going on? And he finally comes to a stop. And at that moment, he turns around, he does a 180 degree turn, and he says, From this moment onwards, turns out for the next 57 years of his life, Yaakov will be my continuation. At this moment in his life, he turns around and he says, I've had it all wrong all these years, I'm changing it all. He gives it over to Yaakov, Yaakov gets the brachas. Let me tell you a story I told last year here. I more or less ended with it. I'm going to tell you the story again, because based on what we've said tonight, I think we'll appreciate it much better. A very, I think one of the most powerful stories I've ever read. There's a Rob in America, I think he's possibly spoken around somewhere, different conventions in, in, uh, in England, somebody called Rav, Rav Heber. And he's a Rob in Monty. And one day, Arab Shabbos, he's preparing his drosha. And he, um, Friday afternoon, maybe short Friday, and he's preparing his drosha for Shabbos. And all of a sudden, the, the phone starts ringing. So he just ignores it, he's too busy. 
But it goes on, this uncertain ringing, he realises maybe it's something urgent, so he picks up the phone. And a man introduces himself, he says, my name is Max Rose, I need to speak to you. So he says, I'm more than happy to speak to you, but can I wait till Sunday? He says, no, 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 this is, this is really urgent. He says, fine, okay, come round, he gives him his address, he comes round. Quarter of an hour later, there's a ring on the bell, he answers the door, and there's this middle-aged man standing there, perhaps getting on in years, but he looks quite athletic, and he says, come in, come in. So he comes in and he says, as I said earlier, my name is Max Rose, before I tell you my, the thing I want to discuss, I need to give you a bit of background to what I do. You see, I'm an atheist, but I'm not just your run-of-the-mill atheist, I'm a professional atheist, meaning to say that for decades, I've been lecturing on the subject, I've written a number of books on the subject, that's what I've been doing my whole life. But earlier today, I just went to the doctor and I received really tragic news that I've been diagnosed, I'm terminally ill, and I've only got maximum a few months to live. And you should know, all of a sudden, I feel this urge, I need to daven, I need to pray, but as an atheist, you can understand it's a bit of a problem, because who am I going to daven to? So that's why I've come to you. So Rav Heber thinks for a moment, and he says, you know what, let me ask you a question. Are you, can you be 100% certain that there is no God in the world? Or could there be maybe a 5%, a 2% chance? Maybe, maybe there is. So he sits back, this university professor, who's been lecturing all his life on atheism, and he says, you know what, I never thought about that. And he thinks, and he says, you know what, you're right. I can't be 100% certain. I'm 95% certain, but you know what, there's a 5% chance, maybe, you, maybe you're right. So he says, that's excellent. But Heber says, can you read? He says, yeah, yeah, back when I was a child, I went to some Hebrew academy, I learned to read. He says, you know what, I'm going to open a Sefer Tehillim for you, and you'll say a Kapitel of Tehillim, and you should aim it, like a basketball game, through that 5% window. Aim it through that, and just imagine God is waiting there, and if you get it there, he's listening to you. So that's what he did. And after he finished saying this capital of Tehillim, so Rav Heber explained to him what it was all about. And he looks up at Rav Heber and he says, you should know, I feel, invig- I feel something's changed. And I want to do something with this moment of inspiration. Where do we go from here? So Rav Heber suggests, he said, perhaps we should set up you know, a learning session. He says, you think about what you want to learn and phone me after Shabbos and we'll, we'll set it up. So Max Rose goes home, Shabbos is out, he phones him straight away, he says, I've given it a lot of thought, I've decided with what I've got left in my life, I want to do Teshuvah. I want to know what Teshuvah involves. I may have hurt people during my life, I may have been, haven't been 100% honest, you know what, I want to learn about Teshuvah. Fine, come round, and each day we'll learn a bit of the Rambam Silchas Teshuvah. And that's what they did. But it was a very, very surreal situation here, because you have here Max Rose, who's learning about doing Teshuvah from the Rambam, and at the same time, he's still lecturing on atheism in this Rockland community college. But as the illness was taking its toll, he's weakening, he's weakening, and finally it came to the day when he had to, he had to call it a day, he retired. But now retiring, he continues on. One thing he wouldn't miss out on, every morning he came to learn with Rav Heber. And started with a, with a yamulka, he put on a couple, then tzitzis, then tefillin. Things were really beginning to take shape. And finally they came to one day where they came to the Rambam where the Rambam writes, what is Teshuvah Gomorrah? What is absolute repentance? And the Rambam writes, for that you have to come to the same situation where you faltered the first time. Exactly everything has to be the same. And this time you turn around 180 degrees and you walk away from it, you pass the test. So Rav Heber's shoulders, not Rav Heber, the Max Rose's shoulders, they sag and he says, what can I do? I'm retired now, I've been lecturing for what, what can I do? How am I ever going to do this? But no, they, they soldiered on to the end, and finally they came to the, towards the end of the, the Ramam Silk Teshuvah, and really his life is ebbing away. But one morning, he comes round, as they're getting right towards the end of it, and he's, he looks like he's full of energy. So Heber says to him, what's, you know, what, what's it all about this morning? He says, you know what, Rabbi? I just had an absolute brainstorm last night. I thought, you know what, I'm going to phone up the university and I'm going to ask them, let me have one last lecture. This will be my last lecture of my life. And I'm going to call it the last class. 
And here, I'm going to get all my students, they're all going to come, all my ex-students will get everyone together. And this time, I'm going to surprise them. And I'm going to lecture, proving to them that there is a God, and there's somebody who runs the world. He says, they won't refuse me, I've been lecturing there for years, they won't even know. I'm going to, this will be a surprise. And that's exactly what he did. He was ill as anything, but he put more energy into this, into this lecture, than anything else. And he told his students, whether you accept what I've said today or not is up to you. But I urge you, leave a 5% window open. You never know. You may need it. And one day, maybe you'll be convinced of what I've said to you today. And with that, he stepped down from the podium. And a little while later, his neshama went, returned, his neshama returned to his creator. But he left behind a wife and children who were shown material mitzvahs. He changed them for the better. That is somebody who in the last moments literally did a 180 degree turn. But did you notice? To do that, he first had to retire. Kozman, he was, as long as he was, he was lecturing there, he had this dichotomy. What was he supposed to do? He's lecturing on the subject of atheism, but he's learning the Rambam? How's he going to change it around? He's coming to this moment of truth. He's forced to stop. The train stopped, and now he can turn around, and he went back in the opposite direction. Give you one further example, Rabbi Loza ben This is the Gemara. Rabbi Loza ben He was somebody the Gemara. He was actually with Loza ben He was about the biggest Rosh you can possibly imagine. The Gemara says there wasn't a single harlot in the world that he hadn't done business with. One day he hears about one across the seven seas. So he gathers together a big sack of money and he travels across. He comes. He comes in, and she says to him, "Mamash is about to." Commit this Avera, she says to him, she blows a breath and she says, Eloza ben Durdaya, just as that breath has gone forever, if you commit this Avera, then you, you will never be accepted for Teshuvah. He suddenly cups hold of himself and he goes to the mountains and the hills and he says, please help me. They say, we can't. And he goes to the earth, heaven and earth, no one's pre- prepared to help him. So he sits down on the mountain, puts his head between his knees and he cries and cries until finally his Neshama leads him. A bus curl, a heavenly voice comes out and it says, Rabbi Eloza ben Durdaya. Rabbi Eloza ben Durdaya is going straight to Elam Abba. So the Gemara goes on. The Rebbe, Rebbe cried when he heard that. The Gemara goes on. Well, why did he have to cry? The answer is because he, you can imagine, he's facing the test of his life now. But the key words are Adma Unless you push yourself up to and beyond the point of you've got to break all those boundaries, you push your focus beyond the limit, you will not, in the natural course of events, be able to turn around. Because there's so much push in the opposite direction. Telling you, if you admit you're wrong, you've wasted 63, 63 years of your life. Yitzchak invested everything and he succeeded in stopping it there and then. So to Rabbi Rosamund can you imagine? If he admits he's wrong now, this is the moment of truth. He's also facing it. If he admits he's wrong, his whole life, look what he's been doing his whole life. <coughs> so he has to cry and cry. He's not just crying in a sense of shiva. He's crying, fighting with himself to take this moment of inspiration and say, you know what? I've got it all wrong. I'm turning around now. And that's what he did. In the last moment of his life, he pushed himself as Ramosha Shapiro said, Toid Ma'oid, is when a person dies. Because then all limits, all limiting factors, all parameters are removed. And when he got to that sense, finally, as his neshama left, he managed to, to turn around and say, this is not the life I want. And with that, he went straight to Olam Abba, the life he truly wanted. If a person uses that kayak to turn around, to do a complete about turn, then a person can really achieve the greatest height. Looking at Aesop now, but before we come to Aesop, just one last point. If you take the word Ma'od, the word Ma'od in Gematria is 45. If you add to it 8, 8 is always the number which is associated with going, going beyond the limit. You get the Gematria Eben. Eben is stone, that's the Kayach of Klad Yisrael. Mishom Reya Eben Yisrael. The Maral says that Klad Yisrael, that's Eben. Mishom Reya Eben Yisrael. We have the ability to go beyond our limits and change, change ourselves completely for the better. 
Let's now look at the parallel, the next posuk. We've got Esau here. And Esau is also facing the same thing. He realizes what a major, major mistake he's made his whole life. What's he going to do with it? So by Yitzhak, he cries out, He's also fighting, fighting, fighting. He's pushing himself to the absolute limit. For what? We'll see in a second. And what's he do with this Atma'od? Yitzchok used the Atma'od. This is frightening. This is absolutely frightening what, what we're about to see now. Yitzchok used the Atma'od to change his whole life. What does Esau do with the Atma'od? This is anti-Semitism as it starts. Esau hates Yaakov. For what? That's what it's all about. He can't take this humiliation, this ridicule, look what a mistake you, to admit he's wrong, I will never admit I'm wrong. You know what I'm going to do instead? I have the kayak, I could have done what my father did. Push myself to the limit and turn around. No, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to continue on in the same direction. But instead of just continuing walking one step at a time, I'm going to push myself beyond the limit. My anti-Semitism, my violence towards Yaakov knows no limit. And you know what you get as a result of it? We only have to look at how history, going back just over 70 years, a Holocaust, I'm three, four generations on. And when I read these stories, you sit back and you just, I have a sec, you just, what? How can anyone even think what they only did? You hate somebody, but to do the things they did, it's, there's no rationale. The answer is Atma'od. It's out of the box. Esau's hatred towards Yaakov was Atma'od. He could have used these kirchis beyond the limit to change his life for the better. But he decided not to. Rather, he invested every single ounce of his kayak to obliterate, to obliterate Yaakov. And where do we see that? The Maral says that Esau, also in the, the Nebuah, you go with Doniel and Nebuchadnezzar and Sefer Doniel, Esau, you've got Pras, you've got Persia. Their antagonism towards Kalal Esau, there's a rationale behind it. Some are interested in COVID, some are after money. Says the Maharal, Aesop, he's Evan. He's also Evan. He takes down Ma'od, he adds the eight to it, he pushes it to the absolute limit. Evan, says the Maharal, is he's just out to kill and destroy for the sake of destruction and nothing else. There's no rationale. There's no real motive or gain for him. He just wants to prove to the world once and for all that there was nothing in those brothels. You'll see in the end, he believes. And that's the difference between, between Yaakov and Aesop. Between Yitzchak and Esau. Yitzchak, Admaoid, he's fighting, fighting, fighting. 63 years have gone to wait. You know what? I'm going to turn it around and make it better now. I'm going to turn in the opposite direction. Esau, Admaoid, he's fighting, fighting, and instead of turning around, he says, I'm going to use this to go beyond the limit and continue in the, op- the same direction. But not, until now, by Yibez, Esau, he just, he, he was derision, it was ridicule, but now I'm going to kill Yaakov and everything that Yaakov stands for. As Rivka said, Again, it's not just stump. It's because he can't stand the fact that that Bechira, actually that he lost, he lost the Brachos with it. Let me just give you one or two final examples and then with that we'll close. Chiel. There's something in Nach called Chiel. Just a little bit of background. When Yeshua destroyed Yericho, when they were going into Eretz Yisrael, he said, Yericho is not to be built up again. The walls... They sank it to the ground, and he said, anyone who builds up Yericho with his first child, sorry, with the foundations, as he sets the foundations, he'll lose his first child. And when he finally sets the gates in, he'll lose his final child. So there's something called Chiyad who came along, and that's exactly what he did. He built up Yericho, and he lost one child after the other. So they ask, I think again, Rebchayim Shmulevitz, Ramosh Aaron Stern, the, the Mashkiach of Kamenitz, also speaks about this. You know, you'd think after he lost one child, maybe a second child, maybe somebody would have actually, like, told him, maybe it's time to stop. The answer is, when a person is on a downward spiral, there's no stop. It's right to the abyss. I've told this story many times before, but to me it's one of the most shocking stories you'll ever hear. I heard many years ago, Rabbi Sokha Franz, he said of two people who were involved in a machlekes. And one day, one of them, Lost a child. Never lost a child. 
A little while later, I think he lost another child. So somebody went over to him and said, you know, putting two and two together, do you not see what's happening from this machlokas? So the person said, he said, I'm prepared, I said, this is what he said, I'm prepared to bury every single one of my children, but I'm going to win. That's what he said. I can still, still hear of your, your soccer fan saying that. He said, I'm prepared. This is when a person loses sense of direction. He's so convinced that he's right, nothing will stop him. And that's what happened with Chia. Says Reb Chaim Shemulev, says Reb Moshe Arenstein, but it goes further. Chia lost all his children. We move a little bit on. When he's, he's sitting shiva for his younger son, so Achel comes in, he says, you think it's anything to do with Yeshua? Ah, it's got nothing to do with him. I'll prove it to you. My own son, uh, sorry, my Moshe Rabbeinu, the Rebbe of Yeshua, he said, anyone who serves Aved Zara, ah, there'll be a drought. Well, there's no drought. I've served Aved Zara. I've got the whole of Kalisra serving Aved Zara. So what? So, so he goes out and he, and he causes a drought. So then you have the showdown between Eliyahu and the Obdi Abal. Who's, who's the true God? So they decide, you know what, they'll each take a bull and we'll see what happens. So the question they all ask is, fine, so the Obdi Abal, they take this bull. They know better than any, anyone else that it's not, nothing's going to happen. They can cry out to the Baal all day long and he all made a mockery of them. Maybe, maybe he's asleep. Maybe he's busy. What were they thinking? So Chazal say, you know what they, they had planned? Under the Mizbeah, they, they built a tunnel. And somebody was going to go into this tunnel and he would go and when they called out to the Baal, he would light a fire and the fire would come out and burn up their, their korban. But just their, fa- their plan was foiled when a snake came along and bit this person and killed him. Do you know who this person was? This person was once a tzaddik. That was Chia. So Moshe Aaron Sturm, when a person starts, he's a tzaddik. He was a tzaddik, Chazal tell us. But he started and he was convinced of his path. He was not willing to change. No one knows where it'll end up. I'll just end on a practical level, just taking one example from the Chovitz Chaim. We talked on this, I'd call this a macro level. But the Chovitz Chaim gives a moshal. He says, you know, I don't know if it ever happens to you, I can only speak for myself, but sometimes, you know, a person's Dominic Shemona Esra, and you start off, you know, this time it's real, I'm going to dive with Kavon. First Baruch goes very well. Suddenly you find yourself in Simshalem. You think, how did I get there? You know, Kapitza Saderach is one thing, but what happened there? So, the Yitzhah says, you know what, you failed, forget it. You know what, next, next fiddle will start again. What's the point? I mean, one brochet, forget it. So the Chovitz Chaim gives us quite a well-known moshe. He says there was once a, a lady who was selling, selling uh, rolls, and she's standing on the, on the, in, you know, in the shuk in the market there, and somebody comes past, knocks her basket, and they go everywhere, and the, this garment starts snatching all of them. So a wise man walks past and says, what are you doing? So she tells him quick. He says, well, look, half a few yourself, at least you'll end up with something. Says the Chovitz Chaim, the Yitzhar has got us. He's managed to destroy our Shemona Esri. Are we just going to let him take, take everything? Let's hop something. Let's at least take a roll. Take, a shman, take a, at least one bracha. It's, no, you can't underestimate that. That, I must tell you, by the way, is godless. If Shimshon Pinker says, and with this I will conclude, if Shimshon Pinker used to say, he, gives, he used to give a share, I think for an hour and a half, his Dafayemi share. Somebody would, come, somebody would come late, they came 10 minutes late, he says he'd give it to them. And he was a Baal They came 20 minutes late, half an hour late, he really let in. Three quarters of an hour late, but you come halfway through the shir. Somebody comes an hour late, he'd say, he'd stop the shir, and he'd say, everyone, I want you to know, this is godless. This is absolute greatness. Why? He says, well, I'll tell you why. You come 10 minutes late, Taka, you should have been on time. But a person who comes at te- you know, an hour late, you know what the Yitzhah says? You've missed an hour anyway. You're gonna, what are you going to get from this share? You're not going to be able to pick up the share anyway. It's going to be embarrassing. And this is not the first time this has happened either. So you know what? Just leave it. Tomorrow you'll go. He says, somebody who can tell the Yitzhah, you know what? I'll cut half an hour of learning. I'll cut quarter of an hour of learning. That's godless. A person who can come to the end of a Shemayin Esri and say, you know what? I failed. But you know what? I'm, not, I'm going to take something from this Shemayin Esri. That is godless. And just like Rabbi Lozamendel died, just like Yitzchak Ovinu, and just like all the people we've seen who succeeded in this moment of truth, and they, they garnered all their strength, and they girded their loins with that, they turned around, and with that, just look at where Rabbi Lozamendel died or went, look at what Yitzchak Ovinu achieved, 
That's what the Vilna Gaon said, all the goodness of this world and the next, for a person who can withstand that moment of truth and succeed, he'll be zeichet to all the goodness in this world and the next as well.